0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit stonegate.church. Okay, so we are starting a new set of sermons. Uh, called Valleys Fill First, and it's a set of sermons through the Sermon on the Mount. And I just can't wait for the next few months as we, uh, we're we going to start in the Beatitudes and spend a lot of our fall there. And then uh, picking up in 2019 in January, we'll start the rest of that sermon as we kind of work through uh, chapters five through eight. So we've kind of got that on the horizon in the foreseeable future of our church. And I just can't wait to work through this section of the scriptures with you. And let me just start by giving you a few reasons why we've chosen this section of scripture for this season of our church's life. Here's the first one, is that this section of scripture puts us face to face with Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount has a way of doing that. Uh, Matthew 5 through 7 is a sermon. It's a good way to think about these three chapters. It's a sermon, but it's unlike any other sermon that you've heard because Jesus is the one who's preaching it. That's a good sermon to listen to when Jesus is preaching it. So, so we're getting face-to-face with Jesus in that sort of a way. It's his longest recorded teaching or sermon in the gospel. So this is what we're going to get a chance to walk into. Uh, this last week, I was having uh, lunch with a new family to Stonegate. And they said something I just thought was so interesting. It was so encouraging for me to hear. Uh, But they had talked about their first time they came to Stonegate. The first thing they said was that they were just so warmly welcomed, which I love our hospitable culture in our church. And uh, so they were warmly welcomed. Then they sat down and they said they, they were so refreshed at what happened next. They said, it was like we met Jesus face to face. And I love that. If I, if I had one thing that I'm praying for you week in and week out as we gather together, it is that you would meet God face to face. And what I love about this particular passage of scripture is that's what it's doing for us. It's bringing us right next to Jesus where we get to have a sit down with Jesus and a good long conversation with him. It's bringing us face to face with Jesus. Here's the second reason why we're choosing this passage of scripture. It addresses the question that we're all asking. It's addressing the question that we're all asking. So the sermon starts out with Beatitudes. That comes from a Latin word that means blessed or happy. And if you look at verses three through 12, you see that there's a common way each of those verses start. And that common way or that sort of repetition that's built into this passage, there's those two words that started out, blessed are You see that repeated throughout verses three through 12. Now to untie this passage, you have to first start by untying that phrase. What does it mean to be blessed? What does Jesus mean in this context when he's using that word blessed? So sometimes the best way to get like an idea of what something means is to think about its opposite. So let's start there. If you think about the opposite of, of blessed, if blessed is the positive, the negative of that would be the word cursed. So what does cursed mean? It means to be cut off from God. It means God-forsakenness. It means ruin. It means emptiness in our life. That's the idea of cursed. So by seeing that, we get a sense of what is the positive then. So if cursed means God-forsakenness, blessed means God-withness. If cursed means to be cut off from God, then blessed means to, to be joined to God. If, if cursed means our ruin, then blessed means our renewal. Like God is actually gonna grow something out of the ashes of our life. If cursed means emptiness, then, then to be blessed means fullness. That, that word blessed, if you just think about it in a simple may, way, means to be enduringly happy. Some translations even go there. They'll just say happy are, and they'll fill in each of those beatitudes. So it means to, uh, this enduring happiness, to, to be fortunate, to be hopeful. This is the idea of blessed. And isn't that what the world is after? And if you take a deep you know, long look at your own heart, you'll find that that's what you're after. Every one of us is after that word blessed, that sort of enduring happiness. Uh, Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary on the Beatitudes. Listen to him, uh, listen to him talk about this. Here's the way he says it. Happiness is the great question confronting mankind. The whole world is longing for happiness. And it's tragic to observe the ways in which people are seeking it. "'The vast majority, alas, are doing so "'in a way that is bound to produce misery. "'Anything which by evading the difficulties "'merely makes people happy for the time being "'is ultimately going to add to their misery and problems.'" And listen to this next line. He says, "'This is where the utter deceitfulness of sin comes in. "'It's always offering happiness, "'but it always leads to unhappiness and to final misery.'" That's what makes sin so terrible is we all have this longing for, for this enduring sort of joy, this human flourishing to, to, to be happy. We all have that longing built in us, put there by God and sin comes along and gives us all these deceitful ways to go about getting it that just produce more misery in the long haul. But he goes on to say, the Sermon on the Mount says, however, that if you really want to be happy, here's the way to happiness. Here's the way to go get it. It's Jesus holding up a wide flag, alerting us and saying, don't buy into those ways for happiness. Here's the way to go get it. Now, let's just think for a moment about that longing to be happy. That, that word blessed, it's a, it's a simple word, to be happy, to be fortunate, to that enduring sort of happiness, that human flourishing. We all want it and we're all living for it. Now, you might be, you might be unaware of this, but when you wake up in the morning, That longing for joy, that longing for that word blessed in this passage, that longing for that is what gets you up out of bed. It's what gets you to work. It's what starts your day. It's what gets you going. It is underneath all human doing is that word blessed, the longing for it, the search for it, the quest for it. So one of the most important questions we can ask ourselves is what are we banking on to deliver that word blessed? What are we banking on to deliver that, that word happiness, what, what are we depending on to secure that for us? It's one of the most important answers that, that you can get about your life. Now, you may, you may never have stopped to think about it in like a formal way. You, you may never have stopped to think about, okay, what am I banking on for that? But I'll promise you this, you are living an answer to that question. You may not stop to think about it, but you're living an answer. Your life is banking on something. All of our lives are banking on something. We're we're all doing that. We have a vision for human flourishing. We have a vision of the good life. And we have have painted a road into our life that will lead us there. And we're all on that road. We're, We're all on that quest searching for that thing. And in general, there are two ways that you can go about getting there. To the good life, that that human flourishing, that word blessed, that word happy, that there's two ways you can go about getting there. Way number one, you might call the way of God, that's summarized in the Beatitudes. That way number two, you might consider the way of the world, that would be in the anti-Beatitudes, the exact opposite of the Beatitudes. And, and, And I think this is always such an important thing to consider. Jesus is not the only one intending to make disciples, our world, our culture is also deeply committed to disciple making. You can't do anything in this world without the world intentionally trying to make a disciple of you. You can't watch a commercial. You can't watch a game. You can't do anything in this world without this world and our culture that we're kind of immersed in, seeding into your heart's beliefs about certain things. And in particular, seeding into your heart beliefs about how do we get to the good life? Like, how do, we, how do we actually obtain that happiness that we all long for? And what the world is convincing all of us of, trying to convince us all of, is the way to get to happiness, the way to get to that blessed life is with the anti-beatitudes. Listen to Ray Ortland as he describes the way of the world, these anti-beatitudes. This is the way he says it. Here's the world's way to happiness. Blessed, happy are the entitled, for they get their way. Blessed are the carefree, for they are comfortable. Blessed are the pushy, for they win. Blessed are the self righteous, for they need nothing. Blessed are the vengeful, for they will be feared. Blessed are those who don't get caught, for they look great. Blessed are the argumentative, for they get in the last word. Blessed are the winners, for they get their way in life. This is the way of the world. It's the anti-beatitudes. And Jesus is coming to us knowing we're immersed in a world who thinks like that about happiness. And he's saying no to that. The, the way to happiness is not by you getting as high as you can and everybody else underneath you. That is not the way of happiness. The way to happiness is to get low, to get underneath everybody else. The, the way to happiness is paved on this road, poverty of spirit. To, to those who mourn over their sin to the meek, that's the way to happiness, to those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, to the merciful, to the pure in heart, to the peacemakers, to the persecuted. That that is the road to happiness. Jesus is looking at us and he's saying, listen, that is the way, it's to get low. In a sense, Jesus is looking at us and he's reminding us, he's telling us in this passage, valleys really do fill first with happiness. And until you're ready to get down into the valley, like leave your mountaintop, everybody else underneath you, until you're ready to leave that mountaintop way up there and to come down into the valley down here, you will never see happiness in your life. You will never find that word blessed. If we want the deep, durable delight in God that only Jesus offers, there is only one way to it and the Beatitudes summarize that road summarizes that that way. So it addresses these questions that we're all asking, that deep longing for that word blessed or happiness. And thirdly, it's one of the richest sections of the scriptures. It's one of the richest sections of the scriptures. There are few places in the Bible that are as rich and ready for us to enjoy as Matthew chapter 5 through 7. It is just one of the most magnificent places in the Bible. Listen to Thomas Watson. He was an old Puritan pastor. Listen to him describe this section of scripture. He says, in this portion of the Holy Scripture, you have the summary of true religion. The Bible epitomized. Here is a garden of delight where you may pluck those flowers which will deck the hidden man of your heart. Here is the golden key, which will open the gate of paradise. Here is the conduit of the gospel, running wine to nourish such as are poor in spirit and pure in heart. Here is the rich cabinet wherein the pearl of blessedness is locked up. Here is the golden pot holding manna, which will feed and revive the soul unto everlasting life. And Stonegate, I just, I am praying that we are coming to this section of scripture expectant, hopeful, open-hearted, and ready to receive everything that Jesus would have for us here. So before we go on, can we just ask the Lord to, to create that posture in us? Can we just stop and pray that God would make us into those sort of people ready and open for all that he would have for us? Pray with me. Father, I agree with the saints who have gone before that have told us that the best way to read the Bible is on our knees. And Father, that's the posture with which we wanna read these chapters of your scriptures. God, God, make us low enough so that we can receive from you. God, open our hearts so that we will be ready to say yes to whatever it is that you would have for us. God, would you, would you by your grace conform us into what we see in these chapters of your Bible? God, would you conform us more and more into the image of our servant, King Jesus? God, by your grace, would you do that? And it's in your good name that we ask it, amen. Okay, so let's start in Matthew chapter four. We're gonna back up one chapter and look at verse 12 in Matthew chapter four. If you have the English standard version, the ESV, you'll see that right over verse 12, there's this heading that says, Jesus begins his ministry. He's beginning his ministry. Then if you come down to verse 17 in chapter four, you're going to see the core message of his ministry. This is, this is what he's saying to people around him as he's doing ministry. It says, from this time, Jesus began to preach. This is Matthew chapter four, verse 17. He began to preach and he's saying this. This is gonna be a one, word or one sentence summary of what he's saying to people, what he's preaching to people. And here's, his, here's the one sentence summary. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus, he's coming and he's announcing a new kingdom. He's announcing a new community, a new kind of community. And the first thing he does after he announces this new kingdom, this new community is to describe the way into the community. And there's only one way in. There's only one way in to this new kingdom and community that Jesus is announcing. And that one way is through the door of repentance. That that is the only way in. Repentance, it's turning from how we see life, how we think about life to how Jesus sees life and how he thinks about life. That's the way into the kingdom. It's humbling ourselves so that we can receive the grace of God. That, that's the way in. So he's describing the kingdom, this new community, and he's describing the way into the, the, this new kingdom and community. It's repentance. Now, what are you expecting Jesus to do next? I'm expecting the next thing for him to do is let's talk about the doctrine of this new kingdom. Let me teach you about the X's and O's of, of what you're to believe in this new kingdom, but that's not what he does. You turn to Matthew chapter five and the first thing Jesus does is he doesn't address gospel doctrine. He addresses a gospel culture. He, he addresses, that this, is, this is what life inside this kingdom is to look like. This is what faithful Christianity looks like. This is what authentic, true, right living with God looks like. In essence, in in Matthew chapter five through verse seven, or chapter seven, he's describing what a New Testament church, what a Christian ought to look like. Like when you bump into follower of Jesus, what you ought to bump into and what ought to ooze out of them. He's describing a culture, an ethos that should be around the Christian life. This is what he's doing when you get to Matthew chapter five. And it starts in verse one. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, and this is, we're not gonna make it any further than verse three today. Saying, verse three. The first thing he says about a gospel culture, life inside the kingdom looks like this. Blessed, happy, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. I, I want to try to hold up verse 3 and look at it from a couple different angles. I, I want to just consider the, the what of it. Like, wh- what is it? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Then we'll consider the why, like why is it that we need this in our life? You need it, I need it. Why do we all need to be poor in spirit? And then we'll finish by the how. How, Where do we find this this poverty of spirit? How how do we move into this poverty of spirit? So first, the what. what. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? I think in a lot of ways, this first beatitude is really the key to the rest of the beatitudes, If we don't get this one nailed down, we can't get to the other ones. In a lot of ways, it's the key to the Christian life. This is underneath all faithful Christian living, this particular beatitude of of being poor in spirit. Um, Spurge, and I love how he said it, just relating it to the other beatitudes. He said that this particular beatitude, this first one is the porch of the temple of blessedness or happiness. In other words, if anybody's going to enter into the temple of happiness, If we're gonna gonna do that, we first have to step down onto the porch of poverty of spirit. This is step one. This is the first thing that has to happen. So, So what is poverty of spirit? Here's just a simple working definition for it. Poverty of spirit is a living, breathing awareness of your moral bankruptcy before God. It's a living, breathing awareness of your moral bankruptcy before God. To be poor in spirit is to know, not just intellectually, but deep down in your bones, that we bring nothing to God but our need for grace. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. It's It's a posture before God. It's the opposite of pride. It's continually coming to God, embracing that we are weak, needy, helpless people, and we need God. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Uh, Back in college, I spent three years in a fraternity house. It really is a miracle that I'm a pastor. (laughs) (laughs) Three years in a fraternity house. And one of the things that I, looking back, appreciate most about those three years is it, it allowed me to form really deep relationships with people who were really far from God. So I'm just in conversations all the time with people who are wrestling through belief, wrestling through, um, what does it mean to come to Jesus? Do I wanna come to Jesus? God just like opened up relationship after relationship in that context for me to just minister and tend to people's hearts with the good news of Jesus. But one of the things that would continually come up and I learned was one of the many objections people have to Christianity, but this was one of them that was burning brightly in the hearts of people would go something like this. Christianity is just a crutch. It's just a crutch. That's what Christianity is. And that would be said with with all sorts of objections. Like, I don't want it to be that. It's not okay with me that it's that. And and my response would always be, and this is the right answer to that question, or that statement is, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what Christianity is. It is 100% a crutch. Or as R.C. Sproul said, he says, it's not just a crutch. It's like the whole intensive care unit. It's, it's, it's all of that. It, it, but, but yes, it, that, that's exactly what it is. It, it is a crutch for weak people. Now, I think it's interesting to think about why is that seen as an, as an objection? Why is it that people are saying that in a way looking down their nose at Christianity as if how could you be in that and a part of that if, if it's a crutch? I love how one pastor answered that question. Here's why that scene is an objection. He said it this way If Christianity is a crutch, that means it's only for cripples. And the problem is, we don't like to think of ourselves as crippled. Thinking of ourselves as crippled, morally crippled, spiritually crippled, thinking of ourselves this way, it's offensive to that individualistic, self reliant, self sufficient part of us. to to the whole culture around us that says, no, you need to be your own man. You need to be your own woman. You you need to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You need to be self-willed, self-sufficient, self-dependent. You need to be that. It's just so offensive to our culture in that way. It's offensive to the flesh in us, that old part of us that's at war with God, doesn't trust God. The flesh in us, it's obsessed with our own big dealness. And our big dealness is offended but by our weakness and by our neediness. But ironically, this is exactly what Jesus is saying. He's saying, this is what life with me looks like. And there is no other way to relate to me. He's saying, this is what it looks like to to live with me, to, to be in me. This is what it looks like. It looks like being dependent. It looks like being helpless, weak, needy, morally crippled, like you can't do it on your own. This is, what, this is what life with God looks like. And, and what, what he's saying when he says poor in spirit, the blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are those who have embraced their neediness. Those who have embraced their weakness. Now that just walks me into my greatest problem in life. Um, last week, I, I just got, kind of gave the analogy of if somebody put a survey in front of you and One of the questions in that survey was, why don't you describe the greatest problem in your relationship with Jesus? How you relate to Jesus. I I said last week that I think for virtually every one of us, our greatest problem would be our own self-sufficiency, our self-reliance. That when we look at life, how we honestly look at it is, I've got what I need to make it today. God, if I get into a pinch, I'll call, but I really think I've got the wisdom and the resources and what it takes to kind of make it. So so God, I'll, I'll let you know when I need you. This is how most of us live. It's hard for us to stay in touch with reality, the reality of our weakness and our neediness. But when I think about how Jesus addresses the church in Laodicea, I don't look down my nose at them as if I'm I'm looking at them thinking, how could you be that? How could you be that dumb? I'm looking at them thinking, that is me. Listen to how, how Jesus addresses this church. He's coming because he's got something to say to the church in Laodicea. And I wonder if Jesus has this to say to us today. Verse 17 of Revelation 3, Jesus says, for you, church, I, he's talking to a church. He says, church, you lay on a seat, you Christians here. He's saying, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. That is the voice of self-reliance. I'm rich, I've prospered. I've got what I need. I don't need, it. I am bringing the things to the table. I don't need anything from the table. I am rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. But listen to Jesus' confronting words to them. Not realizing, he's looking at them and saying, hey, you who think you've got it all together, you self-reliant people. He's saying, not realizing that this is the real picture of your life, that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That doesn't just describe some of God's kids, it describes every one of God's kids. It doesn't just describe some of us in the room. Those those five words describe all of us in the room. And the poor in spirit are those who have stopped running from that reality and have turned to face that reality and embraced it. That's, That's the poor in spirit. In a lot of ways, this is introducing us to the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. And this is what Jesus is showing us with this first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. He's reminding us that those who believe they have, in the end, get nothing from God. And those who know they have not, in the end, get everything from God. He's reminding us that the grace of God flows downhill. It flows away from those who have and down toward those who know they have not. It flows away from those on the mountaintop pushing everybody else down below them and it flows to those who are willing to get down in the valley, to take the low road down there. That that is where happiness fills first. That that is where the grace of God flows. So let me just ask you the question this morning. Are you coming in today with a living, breathing awareness of your weakness, of your neediness, of your helplessness? The fact that your heart is morally crippled? Are you you coming in with a living, breathing sense of that? That is me, that's not them. That that is me. That that is how I'm seeing myself before God. And and if your answer is yes to that question, there is such great news for you this morning. If your answer is yes, this is the way I see me. the, The great news is God is looking at you and he's saying, Great, as soon as you'll say that, as soon as you'll, as soon as you'll get there, then, then all of my grace, all of my provision, all of my might is now accessible to you. As soon as you'll embrace your weakness, all of my strength will be here waiting for you. I mean, in a lot of ways, Jesus is announcing with this first beatitude that my blessing, my fullness will break into your life as soon as you're willing to admit the depths of your brokenness as soon as you're willing to say, yes, I am poor in spirit, I am bringing nothing but my need, that is the exact moment when the fullness of Jesus rushes into your life. Now, isn't this amazing? Jesus is about to start a movement that 2000 years later will result in moments just like we're having this morning. A bunch of people gathering together to talk about these things, to rehearse these things, to, to worship this risen Jesus. And isn't it amazing that when Jesus comes to draft his team, he's like, hey, who knows you're a moron? Let's start there. Who who knows that you're weak? Who who knows that you're needy? Who is the most helpless person here? That's who I want. Now picture you drafting your team. And I just wonder if our team would have gone that way. I just wonder if our team would have been picked like this. Give me the most helpless person out there. That that's why I want to, I don't think it would be. And I think it's, that's alerting us to something. That's alerting us that we have been lured into seeing Jesus's kingdom like the world sees its kingdom. That the strongest is who we want. That the, that the, the wisest is who we want. And just saying, no, I just want those who are willing to embrace the poverty of their spirit. That, that's who I want. I want those who are willing to get lower than anybody else. That, that's who I want on my team. This is the what. Now let's go to the why. Why do we need this? Gosh, this this answer could be a sermon, but let me just give you three quick answers to it. Number one, it's essential for salvation. Poverty of spirit is essential for salvation. You can't enter into right relationship with God apart from poverty of spirit. It is the prerequisite for salvation. It's the prerequisite for receiving grace from God. The prerequisite is God opening up our eyes so that we see who we are, our absolute moral bankruptcy before him. That's the prerequisite. Listen to Charles Spurgeon talk about this. He says it this way. The narrow gate is not wide enough to allow the man to enter who is great in his own estimation. Selah on that for a minute. Just think about that for a moment. The narrow gate, that, that's the way of salvation. That is Jesus rescuing us and saving us that the narrow gate is not wide enough to allow the man to enter who is great in his own estimation. It's, it's, it's not, it, until we're poor in spirit, we'll never be skinny enough to walk through that gate. He, he goes on, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a man proud of his own spiritual riches to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Maybe you could think about it this way. There's only one thing you need to become a Christian. There's only one thing you need to be rescued by Jesus. There's only one thing. And that one thing is nothing. Nothing. And here's the problem. So few people have it. That's the problem. See, I I think what what happens for a lot of us is rather than being poor in spirit, we really consider ourselves kind of in the, the middle class of spirits. That, that, that's where we kind of see ourselves. It's not that we're the best person out there, but we sure aren't the worst of them out there. See, th- this is how we see ourselves. We know we're not that, but we also know there's no way we're that. And so we come to God thinking like this, God, I'm not saying I'm the best, but God, look at what I am bringing to the table. I mean, God, I'm not saying I do everything right, but God, do you see how well I parent? I mean, God, that's not bad. I mean, do you see how well I work? I mean, that's, that's not bad how I'm doing these things. See, we, we come with a middle class spirit as if we're actually bringing something to the table that God would look at and say, you know what? I, you really don't need Jesus there. I mean, you, you're really bringing everything we need to make this thing go. But middle class in spirit makes us too wide for the narrow gate until we see ourselves as morally bankrupt totally crippled by sin, will never lean into the crutch of Christ. Will never do it. Think about the Pharisees in the New Testament. They're really the good guys in the New Testament, doing a lot of things right. I mean, that's them in the New Testament. But in the end, they're the ones on the outside of the kingdom of God, not the inside. And the Pharisee in the New Testament is a person who sees the bad things in their life they bring those bad things to God and they repent of them. That's a Pharisee in the Bible. The problem with that is it's still not a Christian. A Christian, on the other hand, is a person who sees not only the bad things in their life, but the good things done in an effort to secure their standing before God and brings brings those to God as well and repents of those too. That, that's a Christian. So here's one of the ways we say it. This is what coming into the kingdom of God looks like. It looks like looking at our life and looking at all the bad in our life, the sin in our life that we know, we know it disqualifies us before God. We know that God doesn't like those things. So, so we look at all the bad and we know that that disqualifies us. So, so we have that section of our life. But then a Christian is one who also looks at all the good in their life that they think really qualifies them before God. I mean, they're looking at these good things thinking, I'm bringing this to the table before God and God is gonna look at that and think, man, there's your righteousness. Yes, it's because of those things that you are right and approved. And a Christian is one who is looking at all the things they know disqualify them, all the things that they think qualify them and they're turning from all of those things and they're throwing their life upon the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. That's what a Christian is. This is what it means to enter the kingdom of God. And that requires a poverty of spirit, knowing that the only thing we're bringing to God is our need. It's essential for your salvation. It's also essential for your happiness. Let me read verse three to you again. Here's verse three, Matthew chapter five. Absolutely miserable are the poor in spirit. It doesn't say that, does it? It's not absolutely miserable. It's happy, blessed, satisfied are the poor in spirit. Jesus is saying, this is the way to human flourishing. This is the way to the good life. This is the way to that enduring happiness that your heart longs for and wants. And so this is the question that, that, that this passage confronts us with. And it's the question that I think for most of us this morning, this is where it's gonna require the most faith in Jesus to actually get here and believe this. But, But here's the question that we really have to wrestle through this morning. Do you really believe that the lower you go, the happier in Jesus that you'll become? Man, we need to wrestle with that. Do we really believe that the lower we go, the happier in Jesus we'll become? Because that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that the gentle rain of happiness, of bless, that the gentle, gen, the gentle rain of these things, of, of satisfaction, that deep, durable delight in God, the gentle rain of these things fills the valley first. And until we're willing to walk down into the valley of poverty of spirit, we'll never find these things. What he's trying to convince us of is the lower we go, the happier in him Will become. Listen to Charles Spurgeon talk about this. He says, above all other evils, think about all the evils in your life. There's a lot of scary things that I'm prone to, that you're prone to, that we're all prone to. Above all of those things, he says this we have the most cause to dread our own fullness. Middle class spirit, a rich spirit. Of all the things to dread, of all the things to pay attention to, of all the things to to run from and fight in our life, he is saying we have the most cause to dread our own fullness. Listen to this next statement. The greatest unfitness for Christ is our own imaginary fitness. The the middle-class way we have of seeing our life. He's saying that that's the greatest, that that will make you more unfit for Jesus than anything else. He goes on, when we are utterly undone, when we get past that imaginary unfitness and we get all the way down into the valley of the poverty of spirit, when we are utterly undone, we are near to being enriched. The lower you go, the happier you'll become. Where we end, mercy begins, or rather mercy has begun. And mercy has already done much for us when we are at the end of our own merit, at the end of our own power, at the end of our own wisdom, at the end of our own hope. The deeper the destitution, the deeper the awareness of our own moral bankruptcy, the better, he says. Now, is that the way you see life? I mean, Jesus is trying to convince us this is the way to the happy life. The lower you go, the happier you'll become. Now, now how does that work itself out? I think this is the point Jesus is making. The more you realize your poverty, the more you'll enjoy Jesus's plenty. Do you see how that works? The happier you're gonna become in Jesus. It's only when you realize your lack that you will then be ready and open to receive the fullness that is Jesus. The lower you go, the happier you'll become. But, but going low is a painful thing, isn't it? There's a cost associated with that. And here's, here's the cost. You, to, to go down into the poverty of spirit means that you stop looking at just the best of you and you're also willing to face the worst of you. Now, if you're anything like me, I mean, I just generally like to avoid the worst of me, honestly. I would just rather keep that thing buried behind a locked closet in the, kind of the house of my life and just not see it. But the only way we get down to poverty of spirit is when we'll admit not just the best of us, but we'll also grab a hold of and face the worst of us. Listen to again how Charles Spurgeon, and by the way, he wrote a uh, a set of sermons through the Beatitudes that are just so helpful and good. And I want to give you another quote from him. He says it like this: "For my own part, my constant prayer is that I may know the worst of my case." Whew, have you ever prayed that? God, help me not just see the best of me, but help me see my own moral bankruptcy. Help me see why it is that the only thing I bring to you is my deep need. God, what a great prayer for us to ask the Lord to answer. God, help me see that part of me. He goes on, that I may know the worst of my case, whatever the knowledge may cost me. And can I just say it's gonna cost you a lot? It'll cost you your pride, your self-reliance, all of the strength that you present to people, all your inner big dealness. It's gonna cost you all of that to get to know the worst of you. He goes on, I know that an accurate estimate of my own heart can never be anything but lowering to my self-esteem. My inner sense of big dealness is about to get deflated and cut down to size. But God forbid that I should be spared the humiliation that springs from the truth. Listen to what he goes on to say. The bitter fruits of self-knowledge are always healthy, especially if washed down with the waters of repentance and sweetened with a draught from the wells of salvation. God, that we would believe that. God, we believe that. Jesus is not... He is, not, he is not trying to convince us that we need to do some penance in this passage, that we need to see the worst of us and then we need to get about working it off. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, no, I want you to see the worst of you so that then you will come to me and my fullness will fill your lack this is what he's convincing us of. This is how it is that the poor in spirit are the happiest. This is why it is that the lower we go, the happier we become in Jesus because it's the more of Jesus that we know and experience and love. That This is what he's saying. He's saying, if you'll, if you'll bring the, not just the best of you, but the worst of you to me, if you'll bring all of that to me in repentance, I will refresh your soul. If you'll bring all of that to me in repentance, I will pour in my fullness. Would you have the courage to do that? This is what Jesus is saying. that The lower we go, the happier in Jesus we become. Thirdly, it's essential for the watching world. It's essential for the watching world. I'm amazed at what churches will do to attract people to it. I mean, we'll drop Easter eggs out of helicopter. I mean, we will do some crazy stuff to, to make that happen. But I'm reminded of the words of Martin Lloyd Jones when he says this The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. If we want to attract people to the beauty of Jesus, that is done by embracing our weakness and showing it so that people can see his strength by embracing and showing our lack so that people can see his fullness, by embracing our poverty so people can see his perfection. This is how we show, this is how we show Jesus. It's how, it's how we attract people to the good news of Jesus. It's essential for the watching world. And then we'll finish here. How do we get it? How do we get it? We can't manufacture a poverty of spirit. You can't do that. It's not a combination code. You do these three things and it's not that. It is a God-wrought gift. That's what poverty of spirit is. It takes the God of the heavens to open our eyes, to to bring off the blinders so that we can see things as they really are, so that we can see our own moral bankruptcy. And the, the way that God does that, the means that God most often uses to do that is really simple. It's just by allowing us to see him. We become poor in spirit by seeing God. Isaiah is a man in the Old Testament. We don't know a lot about Isaiah. We know a few things. He um, kind of did his ministry life in Jerusalem. We know that he was a prophet of God. We know he was alive at the time of King Uzziah. We know generally that Isaiah was a really good man. He, he was a good man. And there's this moment in Isaiah 6, it's one of my favorite pictures in the Bible, favorite scenes in the Bible, where Isaiah sees God. He meets face to face with God. That the very thing that we all need to happen to us happened to him. And I wanna read you these, six, or these five verses. Isaiah chapter six, starting in verse one, they'll be on the screen. It says, I saw the Lord seated upon a throne, high and lifted up and the train of his robe, filled the temple. That's a picture of the beauty of God, that he is the sum total of everything desirable. And he's high and exalted. This is the, this is the majestic sort of God of the scriptures. Verse two, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Can you imagine that moment? Can you imagine that? I mean, he... Isaiah has been gifted by God a vision of God, a seeing of God. In this moment, Isaiah, his eyes, his eyes have been opened to who God is. Now look at the result of that in verse five. And I, Isaiah, I said, woe is me. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. There's your picture of poverty of spirit. Isaiah was a, a, he was a a middle class in, in his poverty. He was a middle class in spirit, right? And he comes in and he sees this vision of God that lays him low. For the first time, he is seeing himself as God sees him, as morally bankrupt. And in that moment, Isaiah knows the only thing I'm bringing to God is my own need. Woe is me, he said. Apart from grace, I am doomed. And oh, how we all need to see God like that. We we all need that. We all need to see God like Isaiah sees God. And we do that by opening the scriptures, by reading, by gazing upon the beauty of Jesus, his his dying love for us on the cross, by praying that the spirit of God would open the blindness of our eyes so that we could see God for all that he is. Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones describe our need to see God like this. He says, there's only one thing I know of that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me to the dust. And that is to look at the son of God and especially contemplate the cross. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Nothing else can do it. When I see that I'm a sinner, that nothing but the Son of God on the cross can save me, I'm humbled to the dust. Nothing but the cross can give us this spirit of humility. The cross shows us that we have no merit to plead, no strength to plead, no righteous acts to plead, we have nothing in ourselves to boast in. That the, the the cross undercuts that sense of self-righteousness, that sense of self-reliance, that sense of independence that we all long for and want. That the cross has a way of cutting us down to size. Cutting us all the way down to size so that we can sing those precious lines to Jesus that nothing. In my hand I bring, but simply to the cross I cling. And Stonegate, I wanna leave you on this note of hope. Here is the wonder of the good news of Jesus. This is the wonder of the gospel of grace. Jesus really can take the proudest man by nature, the proudest woman by nature, and make them a person that's poor in spirit. And may God do that for us. May God do that for you, for me, for us. Let's pray together. I want to give you a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you the things that would be most helpful and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. And. There's going to be a day in the future when the people the world admires are seen for what they really are. And the people who God admires are seen for what they really are. And when all the glitters in this world fades away, What will be seen are those who, just like our big brother Jesus, were willing to to bend the knee and take up the towel and to wash the feet of others. The poor in spirit. That's what will be admired forever. That those who are willing to open up to Jesus, bring their need to him and receive his fullness. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that the lower you can go, the richer you're going to become in Jesus? The happier you're going to become in Jesus. And some of us today, we need to make that first initial leap toward Jesus, where we're turning from all of those things that we know disqualify us, all that sin in our life, And we're also turning from all that we think and we have kind of banked on as qualifying us before God. And we hurl our life upon the risen Jesus. This is the way into the kingdom. And if you've never done that, we've got people at both prayer tables in the back. They would love to meet with you and to pray for you and to begin that journey with you this morning. And for the rest of us in the room, let's just pray that God would show us the worst of us so that we would see our great need and we could come to Jesus with our fullness. Really what Jesus is inviting us into is to come weak and needy. To come weak and needy to Him. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.